Well, uh, Blaise Pascal was a child prodigy. He was born in 1623 in France, and by the age of 16, he'd already published a pioneering treatise in geometry. I don't know about you, but at age 16, I was kind of a goof off, so a long ways from making a contribution to math. Um, now, Pascal, in his teens and 20s, made uh, significant contributions to mathematics and philosophy and was one of the first secular rationalist thinkers of the early days of the Enlightenment. And we live with a lot of the fruit of, of the Enlightenment in good and often bad ways. Now, Blaise was very close with his father and his only sister, Jacqueline. And his father had personally educated his kids together, and, and they gained this really tight family bond. And this was where Blaze really felt uh, a connection. And, and yet, Blaze struggled with poor health his entire life. He had bad health issues uh, throughout his entire life. Um, when his father died in 1651, and then his sister shortly afterwards moved away to join a Christian convent, Blaise felt abandoned and alone, and he thought his sister went to join a cult. And he thought, I'm by myself now. What am I going to do? He, he, he grew increasingly despairing of the world and saw a lot of his very heady, very rationalist ways of thinking as, as a dead end. And, and on November 23rd, 1654, at 10.30 p.m., Blaze met God. He was at his home, and he became suddenly aware of God's presence. He was convicted of his sin and despair, and he entrusted himself to the Lord Jesus for salvation. Everything he had learned as a kid, because he grew up learning some Bible stories within his, his culture and as a kid going to church, all of the things that he knew as a child about Christianity suddenly came into focus. He immediately wrote a note that's now known as Pascal's Memorial. This is a picture of it, written in French. He sewed this note into the lining of his jacket for the next eight years until his death. He only lived to age 39 because of his health issues. And this is what Pascal wrote that night that he kept near his heart. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certainty. Certainty, feeling, joy, and peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found in the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have, yet I have departed from him. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me be not separated from him forever. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus, I left him. I fled him. Renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him he is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ, my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. Not to forget your words. Amen.
These are the words that Pascal wrote and on his notes sewed into his jacket. And he would go on in his life to write one of the most famous Christian theological works that we know simply as Thoughts. And it was published shortly after his death. And for all of his abilities as a rationalist thinker and a scientist, he spoke powerfully about faith. And this is what he said. He said, the heart has its reasons for which reason knows nothing. And he says, we know this in countless ways. It's like being awake. How do you know that you're awake? Or how do you know that someone loves you? Well, yes, there might be evidence of this, but he says that there's, there's a deeper thing going on. He says that, that there's something that we feel and know at a deeper level, at a heart level. And he says that we can become aware of God. We can come to a point of surrender and trust in God. We don't have to necessarily mount the argument from the ground up by reason alone. But he says that it is the heart which perceives God, that it's faith is God perceived by the heart. So let me be really clear. Okay, Pascal was not opposed to the place of logic and reason to support his faith. The same work, thoughts, that he wrote, he defends the historical reliability of the Gospels. He defends the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. But he understood that the perceptions of the heart are where those rational propositions move from mere logic to saving, living faith. Like the longest distance in the world from your head to your heart. See, in other words, Pascal knew that it was ultimately about trust. That similarly, uh, the Apostle Paul made this clear to the church in Rome. Many of you are familiar with this passage where Paul talks about how outward truth claims have to reflect the, the surrender and the inner trust in our hearts. So Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, Paul said to this, this to the church in Rome. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. But it's with your, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, friends, the most important question that you will ever be confronted with is this. How will you respond to the words and works of Jesus? How you respond to the evidence of his miracles, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. In other words, how will you respond to his claims to be Messiah, his claim to be Lord and Savior, Lord over all creation? This is the Gospel of John. John is, Jesus, as, as John describes what Jesus says, he's driving at this fine point of what are you going to do with Jesus? And it's a moment for us to reflect, for us to be encouraged, for us to, to ponder the, the pointedness of this response that we are demanded. Now, um, so jump with me into John chapter 10. We're going back to the gospel of John this morning. So grab your Bible, open up to John 10. And we're jumping back into our series, Full of Grace and Truth. And we're going to be looking at a passage that goes deeper into the conflict over Jesus' claims. And if you need a copy of the scripture, raise your hand because we'd love to have you follow along here. Um, so as we open to this passage, I want you to notice a key word as I read this passage. The word believe is repeated six times in this passage. 
And it draws out the importance of trusting in Jesus' words and his miraculous work to prove that he's the Son of God, that he's our Lord and Savior. So listen to this text and look at that word believe that gets repeated. So I'm going to read John chapter 10, starting in verses, verse 22 and reading through verse 42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews, who, uh, the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. They get, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? And if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, and there he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I want to tackle this in two parts. All right. So the first part of the text is when Jesus explains why these people don't believe. And he talks about how the sheep know his voice, that they obey. And there's something tied to just their, their ears being open to hear and them actually responding. So we talk about why they don't believe in verses 22 to 30. Then Jesus gets at the heart of the problem, starting in verse 31, that the heart of the problem is their trust. And that's what we're going to talk about second here. So let's jump right in. Why they don't believe, 22 to 30. Now, um, if you remember in the Gospel of John, since we're picking this up after a month, um, some time has passed since the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you remember from the previous chapters, Jesus was doing a series of teachings at the Feast of Tabernacles, which usually happened in late September or early October. And now, chapter, the end of chapter 10, John is now fast-forwarding a few months, and it's now the Festival of Dedication, which many of us know today as Hanukkah. Same festival. And it's December now, so it's a couple months later. Let me give you a little bit of background on the Festival of Dedication, because this will help set up why Jesus says what he does and what John, the meaning that John's drawing out here. This festival was relatively new, 
is a new addition to the Jewish calendar. It's not found in the Old Testament because it refers to some more recent events in the Jewish people. You see, in 167 BC, a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple by setting up a pagan altar to displace the altar of the living God right there in the temple in Jerusalem. And so this Syrian king instituted martial law across the city of Jerusalem with brutal repression of the religious practices of the Israelites or the Jewish people, including a new law that made it a capital offense to possess the Hebrew scriptures. During this time, if you possessed the Bible in your hands, you could be executed. Now, many of the Jews fought back, okay? They used some guerrilla warfare, and they sort of gathered more and more steam, and there was more and more people in this rebellion, this revolt against this Syrian king, and they gained enough members to overthrow the Syrians and, through the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. Now, Judas, is, Judas Maccabeus literally means Judas the Hammer. So you get a little bit of an idea of his personality, okay? Judas the Hammer is going to come in and take care of business, right? What they did is they recaptured the temple and they consecrated it to God in 164 BC and they held an eight-day celebration that was marked by the lighting of candles in your home symbolizing the miraculous oil that was found in the temple to keep the, te the lights burning within the temple and then the growing light of God day by day as more candles are lit to symbolize God's miraculous light in his presence coming to his people who are set apart for his exclusive use in worship. Now, don't miss this, okay? John doesn't mention the festival of dedication on accident. He does it on purpose. He's putting the context. See, here, John picks up the story of the festival of dedication at a time when the Romans are occupying Jerusalem. And the Jews are desperately waiting for the Messiah to come and overthrow their oppressors. And if you think about this, this is only 160-some years before Jesus, 190 years. It wouldn't be that different from us looking back on some eras of our own history. It's within the living memory of these people. And when they think, who's going to get rid of the Romans? They think about someone like Judas the Hammer. They want Jesus to state his intentions plainly. They're waiting for a Messiah, and here Jesus is. And I don't want you to miss this about this festival of dedication. Here is the light of the world. Walking in Solomon's colonnade on the south part of the temple courts, bringing the light of God himself to the temple as Jesus' own light is increasing as he's teaching. And as he's gaining more followers, as those candles are lit, symbolizing the growing light of God coming back to his people, John is not doing this on accident. And yet there are opponents to Jesus who want him to just say what he's doing. They want to know, are we going to go and get our clubs and go after these Romans? Okay, look at what they say. All right, go back to the text here and look at the, uh, especially verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered around him. And you can imagine in the back of their mind, they're thinking about Judas Maccabeus, right? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Look at what Jesus says. Okay, go to his response now. 
in verses 25 to 27. He says, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The work I do, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Do you see what he's describing here? He's, if you remember the earlier part of chapter 10, he had just a couple months earlier spoken about how he was the good shepherd. And now he picks up on that same metaphor of the sheep again. But if you remember what he said, what he taught, what his words and works have been testifying to is the reality that he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You want to know how we're going to win this battle? He said, you even know what the battle's really about? He says, my words and works have been testifying to what my mission is. That my mission is not to be a political messiah who merely overthrows the Romans. My whole mission is not to come at it with an armed rebellion or guerrilla warfare. He's saying, he's speaking plainly. He says, don't, aren't you listening to what I'm saying? Don't you have eyes to see? The miracles and teaching are fulfilling the Father's will because I've come to do something deeper. He says, I'm conquering sin and death. He's achieving a deeper redemption than a mere political Messiah could. He's freeing his flock from the curse of sin and freeing them to the freedom of gaining a new kingdom that's not of this world. You see, all Jesus' words and works have pointed in one direction. He's revealing, on the one hand, he's revealing the Father's will in his words as he speaks. And then on the other hand, he's operating in the Father's power by his works. And together, these two things prove that the Father has sent Jesus. I'm speaking the Father's words. I'm doing the Father's work. Aren't you listening? See, these two things, if we just stop and think about these for a moment, these would be two good markers to talk about what a Christ-centered, God-honoring, gospel-centered church is like. That when we're of the, we're in Christ, we're the people of Christ, we're his body, we're ones who proclaim his truth in word and then work God's power through God working in and among us and through us through the church to see God's work through his people and in the world. And so you see, on the one hand, the powerful proclamation in our witness of God's word that then is also God's, we see God's work through his people and by the spirit as his presence and power are among us. The words and the works of Jesus proclaimed. See, these things point to the free gift of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, uh, we, we need to stop and think about this for a moment because there's some, in, in these words that Jesus speaks, there's some challenging lessons that we need to reflect on or, or challenging ideas or thoughts. What we need to remember here, friends, is that even though Jesus offers forgiveness, here he is, he's speaking his words to these people, they're seeing his works, some still don't believe. It's the reality of the world we live in too. That this is, this is a hard teaching. That it's a reality we see every day. Friends, hard-heartedness is alive and well. Spiritual blindness is a global pandemic. 
Can I put it that way? Many people will plug their ears, never hearing the voice of the Good Shepherd. That's hard. We want, as God does, his desires all to be saved, but we need to recognize that as we bring Jesus' words and we see Jesus' works through the church, that there will be people who say no. And yet, this is the other part of this, for those who do believe, and I want to encourage you, friends, you will be protected by your good shepherd. If you trust in Christ, when you trust in Christ, for no, there is no earthly power, no physical ailment, no circumstance, no tragedy that can prevail against the power of God. Because as Jesus says plainly here, my father, he is greater than all. He will protect you. So this gets to the heart of the matter here, friends, because as Jesus ends his explanation of, of he's looking at these Jewish leaders and he's saying, you don't understand what's going on. He, he, at, the, at this festival of dedication, they don't believe. He concludes with a statement that is the dividing line, and it's verse 30, okay? He says, I and the Father are one. And it's this moment that they pick up stones, and I want to show you what happens here because the deeper problem is their trust. So let's go to that next section starting in verse 31. And let's look at this exchange that goes on, this conversation that reveals the heart of the problem. Now, the heart of the problem in the first century, as Jesus is speaking, is the same in every generation. It's not ultimately the good works or miracles that trip people up. It's the subsequent claim when Jesus says, I am God. People can be deceived by flashy things or, or good works or whatever other things. You could be duped, uh, whatever other things. But it, with a, when, a, when the miracles and the work of God is happening and then the next claim is, Jesus says, I am God. I am your Savior and Lord. That's the dividing line. That's when people can't handle it. See, this is a moment when they pick up the stones to stone Jesus. And I love how this conversation goes on. Okay, do you see what happens here? Jesus looks at them and he says, which of the good works from my father are you mad about? Now, I love it because you know he knows the answer. But he's, he's calling them to account for what they're doing. By asking a question he already knows the answer to. He's looking up at them and saying, are you really going to kill me for healing the sick? Are you really going to kill me for giving sight to the blind? Are you going to kill me for th feeding thousands of people? He's asking them this to illuminate the heart of the problem. And he calls them out on it. And look at their reply. Out of their own mouth, they say to him, we're not going to stone you because of any good works. We want to kill you because of your blasphemy. Because you claim to be God. You see, in their minds, and I want you to, to picture yourself at this moment. In their minds, if you were a mere human being who claims oneness with the Father, it would create two theological problems in the minds of these first century Jews. One is it would elevate a human being to divine status. 
And this would violate the creatureliness, the created order, the fact that a human being is a human being and not God. It would be pure pride to say, I and the Father are one if you were a mere human being. It would be pure hubris to do this. And they say, we can't handle that. We can't do that. We can't allow it. Okay, that's one, elevating a human being. The other is that it, it lowers God to be in competition with other gods. It violates God's oneness. It violates the fact that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that his all-encompassing power are that he alone is God. How dare you claim to be God is what they think. And it is pure heresy to say that you could be one with the Father. It's something a Jew could hardly imagine. And these two reasons are why their reaction is so strong. They pick up stones. They are ready to be the judge and the jury right now. Guilty as charged, death sentence, time for your execution. But friends, Jesus is no mere human being. Yes, he's fully human. He's also fully God. And this is a category the Jews didn't have. It's a claim that is so extraordinary that must be received by faith. See, I want you to look at Jesus' response here as he crystallizes the problem. Pick it up in verse 34. They say, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And then look at what he says. Is it not written in your law? It's never good when Jesus starts to do this. <laughs> Is it not written in your law? I have said that you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Friends, he's quoting a psalm here. He's quoting Psalm 82. He's quoting the psalm to these Jewish leaders, and he's invoking this language of being set apart to hearken to the festival of dedication about the rededicating of the temple is what they're celebrating at this very moment. So let me explain what's going on about this psalm because it's so fascinating. Okay, Psalm 82, if you've read this psalm, if you want to, we'll be reading it in a moment. It's a fascinating song that depicts a cosmic courtroom. So it's this, it's this uh, image of a cosmic courtroom in which God is sitting as judge to rule over or to judge the rulers of Israel to call them to account of their abuse of the law and of God's word and their wickedness and injustice and pride. And so here's how the psalm goes. It's short, so let me just read it for you. You'll see it on the screen, Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You're all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Whoa. Okay, in this psalm, God is presiding as judge over the failed leaders. 
And, and there's, a, there's a number of ways that this psalm has been interpreted over the many centuries. And, and one of, I think, the best way to understand this is that the gods in this psalm are the human rulers of Israel who failed to lead justly and rightly. They failed to understand. They're walking in darkness, even though they had God's very words in their hands. God's power at work. They're the very ones to whom the law has been given and they've seen God's work in things like the parting of the Red Sea. And yet, God presides over them in judgment, holding them to account, saying, you have misjudged, misunderstood, misused my good law. And now, Jesus quotes this psalm. And here in John 10, he's literally standing in the temple courts looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are these human leaders who have God's revealed words in their hand. They're seeing God's revealed works through Jesus as he's healing people. They're listening to God himself speak. And yet they still don't judge rightly. They don't see the truth. They don't respond appropriately to the revealed reality of Jesus Christ, God's own son. And so now, God himself, the word made flesh, the very power of God in living reality, is presiding in judgment over the leaders here in Solomon's colonnade. Oh, no. See, the psalm is being fulfilled. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for the nations are your inheritance. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is saying, this is about you guys. You're not understanding what's going on. Now, there's a couple key lessons that I want to draw out here that are really, help, I hope, helpful and applicable on even how Jesus speaks these words to these guys. There's a couple key lessons. One is Jesus in verse 35 says, did you notice he says, Scripture cannot be set aside. He sort of drops that in in the middle of a sentence. He, say, he quotes the scriptures. He says it cannot be set aside. And what he's saying is that you cannot ignore the scriptures just because it's inconvenient. Or it goes against your personal feelings or your notion of what you think is true. You can't set them aside. You can't ignore them. If this is God's word, then you've got to listen to it. Friends, oh boy, do we need that in our moment in our culture. You can't set it aside. And then he goes on to say, uh, he says that the one whom the father has set apart as his very own son and sent into the world, this points to Jesus' entire mission culminating in his death and resurrection. The fact that he's set apart, remember, the Feast of Dedication is about how the temple was rededicated in an eight-day ceremony after it had been desecrated. And here, as Jesus speaks this psalm, he's saying, don't you see what I'm doing? They still don't see the connection. He's saying, I'm the new temple. We already saw this in John 2. Jesus said, tear down this temple, I'll raise it in three days. And John gives us a clue. He said, they didn't realize at the time he's talking about his body. Here we are, friends. We're, we're heading into Holy Week and Easter next weekend. Jesus has been set aside in the language here, for exclusive use. It's the idea of being sanctified, being made holy, being set apart for God's use. The pre-incarnate son being set aside for God's mission to save his people from their sins by offering the perfect sacrifice on the sacred altar once for all. It is God's plan A. 
that Jesus would do this. And the feast of dedication is being superseded. Here I am. It points to me, he's saying, I am the light that gives light to the world. You see those candles being lit? It's about me. And he challenges these Jewish leaders who are like, hey, give us, just tell us your intentions. Are we going to go get the, the swords now? He says, listen, you need to listen to my words and see my works and understand that I'm doing the Father's will, which is different conquering than what you think. If you see people being healed, and you see divine power at work, if you hear the words of life, if you're encountering the very presence of God through me, don't get caught up in all that other stuff. Listen to the perception of your heart, as Pascal would say. Go deeper. Choose to trust in me, is what he's saying. You see, in other words, friends, we need to understand this. Jesus' works, his miracles in the Gospels, they corroborate his claim to be the Son of God. That's what he's saying. If you don't believe that I'm God's Son, just look at the works I'm doing. Who else could do this? We've seen this theme already in the Gospel of John, okay? John 3, Nicodemus says to Jesus in, in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Or take the blind man, John 9. He was healed by Jesus, and then he goes to confront the Jewish leaders, and he's standing there on trial, and this is what he says to them. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They want to stone him too. Or maybe, maybe most bluntly, Jesus puts the challenge this way in John 8. He says, if God were your father, he says this to the Jewish rulers, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God has sent me. In other words, the evidence, what, what we see in the Gospel of John up to this moment, Jesus is saying, if, if I'm really truly the Son of God, you all have to understand that the evidence demands a response. The evidence demands a response. In light of Jesus' words and his power, you cannot be neutral. There is no neutral. His claims are so extraordinary that you're either on one side or the other. You can't just say, I don't care. You see, as I said earlier, this passage confronts us as the most important question you'll ever be asked or posed in this life. How will you respond to Jesus' claims to be Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the Lord over all creation? He is the dividing line of history. He's the dividing line in your life. You're on one side or the other. And there's a stark reality that we need to face. It comes up in this text. It's so clear how the, the, the Jewish leaders respond. We need to be faced with this stark reality that whenever someone is confronted with this question, how are you going to respond to the Son of God, Jesus himself? There's usually two responses. One is you will either pick up a stone or you'll lay down your life. Those are the two options. Can't be neutral. 
We see either, either you're going to be confronted with reality of Jesus is Lord over everything, including your entire life. He created you and made you on purpose for a purpose. If that grand reality is true, you can't be neutral. You're either going to say, I don't want to hear it anymore, or the only other option is to lay down your whole life to your maker. You see, you will either double down on your idolatry and your desire to be on the throne of your own life, or you'll fall at his feet in surrender and trust to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is what we're confronted with in John. And you know what? I love this passage because it ends with an ironic twist. Did you happen to see where Jesus went and what happened? There's a pointed contrast. Remember the word believe is repeated over and over again. You see these Jewish leaders who, who cannot believe. It. It's like they, they just can't handle it and they want to stone Jesus. And look at what happens next. Jesus leaves the Jewish leaders. He escapes their grasp, verse 39. And then in verse 40, he goes back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days and he stayed there. And this is what the people testified about him. He goes to the wilderness where John had been baptizing, and he goes to the masses of people, the people who are lost like sheep without a shepherd, who are, who are in desperate need. And they give an evaluation of him. Many people came to him, verse 41, and they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And then look at this last line. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Simple faith. This is a foreshadow of what we're called to in simple faith, trusting in Jesus. But we're in the middle of the gospel of John still, and so I don't want to miss this, friends. These are the very same people who, a couple months later, will welcome Jesus to Jerusalem as king on Palm Sunday, and they will shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a week later, will be the very same people who turned their back on Jesus, who thought he was coming to deliver them from the Romans or whatever other things they thought. And they're the very same ones who are going to shout, Crucify! They had yet to understand his deeper mission. They'd, they'd, they'd yet to see that his work is to defeat sin and death and to do a work of redeeming them by making them a new creation from the inside out to deliver them through a spiritual rebirth into a foretaste of an eternal kingdom. And this is what we need to contemplate this week. I guess this is my challenge for you, just an application. Um, this week, we need to contemplate the deeper work of what Jesus is doing and has done uh, by the cross. And, and we've written a devotional. Uh, Pastor Steve put together a devotional that goes week, or day by day through the week, starting tomorrow morning. There's some paper copies in the back, but you'll also get an email in your inbox tomorrow morning, all the whole church, uh, with a PDF of this devotional. And you're welcome to join us as a church in walking day by day to prepare ourselves for Good Friday and Easter thinking about this opportunity to, to entrust ourselves in full surrender to Jesus with, with a deep and abiding faith, to explore, to, to dive in in a deeper way. As Blaise Pascal would say, let these devotionals call you to what he says, what is faith? God perceived by the heart. To, to rest in his presence this week.
looking ahead to Good Friday. As we sit, and I'll, I'll invite you to our Good Friday service at 4 o'clock, we're going to have some special music and some time of, of prayer and confession and just an opportunity to sit in the gravity, the weightiness of Jesus' death. And then, of course, celebrating on Resurrection Sunday. Join us for that, our regular service times. We're going to have some special music there, too. Um, but an opportunity to, to have some fun things planned for the kids and some other, some other events. But let this week draw you to that deeper uh, contemplation of Christ's death and his resurrection. To that perception in the heart to full surrender to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we've been challenged this morning through this text, how are we going to respond? <laughs> I know that many of us, as we've put our trust in you and we have a saving faith in you, Lord Jesus, we're walking with you day by day. I pray that you would cause uh, just an affirmation and an encouragement and a joy this morning, much as, as Blaise Pascal put in his, his memorial, that his tears of joy are overflowing because of his sense of your presence, his knowledge of the saving work of Christ, and his desire to live for you day by day. Lord, let that be the anthem of us this morning. And those maybe who need to take that leap, that maybe it's like a slice of my life is following Jesus, but the rest of my life is, is my gig. That you would call us to full surrender to you in repentance and in full trust, in faith. As Paul said in Romans, to confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that, God ra that you raised him from the dead for our salvation, in our place, for the wrath that we deserved because we were dirty, we were lost, we were broken, we were in darkness. And yet Jesus brought light and holiness and redemption and he paid the price. So Lord, as we reflect on this, as we go into this week, there's a lot of things that are heavy upon us individually and as a church. Heavy things that are happening in this world around us. We rest in the assurance of your goodness, your redemption through Christ your triumphant entry as king, your death and your resurrection, Lord, it is well. You have conquered, and so we rest in those truths. In Jesus' name, amen.